Hi, everyone. We're back with Mind Rolling with a new episode. And uh, it's actually, oh, I'll tell a little story about it. But before I tell the story about meeting this particular gentleman, his name is Tim Desmond, uh, we want to, again, give you a couple of tips from 1440, our wonderful partners. 1440.org, 1440 Multiversity has these extraordinary weekend retreats, workshops in the middle of California, <laughs> right? Uh, Santa Cruz, that's it. They're right by Santa Cruz. But they're worth going to if you're in New York and flying, to, flying there. Like for one, Frank Ostaseski is going to be teaching around what can death teach us. And uh, he has been at our retreats in Maui. He's been on, on the Be Here Now Network. And that's in August. So make a marker for that one. Frank is phenomenal. Uh, and then I see something else that... It appeals to me, and I like sharing stuff that appeals to me. Uh, Lama Mingmar Tseten, who I don't really know, but I'd like to know. He's doing two different uh, retreats, one on Tibetan mindfulness and one on healing chode, which I do know about and do really appreciate um, the practice, which Lama Soltrum, who has also been on the podcast uh, and has a wonderful center in southern Colorado, is a practitioner of and just you want to hear a little bit about it okay in chode a tibetan meditation practice developed by the famed 11th century yogini machik labron generosity is practiced for the purpose of severing ego clinging okay it's a fantastic practice where you're not shying away from all the negative bullshit that comes on a moment to moment basis sometimes or certainly crops up often uh, you're not pushing you're inviting and enveloping uh, with uh, love and compassion chode practitioners deliberately go to frightening places such as a cemetery at night and visualize making their body into an offering since these places provoke fear and clinging to the body the offering is a direct confrontation with the ego so yeah we should all consider going to Lama Big Martzetten's Healing Cho, July 21 to 24, okay? Also, here's another commercial. We don't have commercials because we're a nonprofit, but we, uh, here's another way in which we can be supported, Be Here Now Network, uh, and that is we have a wonderful store. It's actually on ramdas.org, ramdas.org slash shop, and uh, I've been told, I have not said a word about these wonderful mind-rolling t-shirts uh, that we have in stock, okay? So there's a beautiful mind-rolling with waves. I love it. I wear it and people go, where can I get it? I said, why? You don't know about it? <laughs> and then the other one is awoken awareness, okay? One of my favorite phrases. And that's, uh, that's a, a, something that uh, I think everyone would enjoy being in awoken awareness. I have a podcast coming up with Locke Kelly, actually. Uh, look out for 
all about awareness. Uh, okay, so let's go to Tim. So Tim Desmond. So <laughs> I was given this book by the people at Harper Warren, who we, you know, do uh, different publishing deals with and so on. Lovely people. And they said, yeah, I think you really like this guy who wrote this book. Except the book was called How to Be Human in a Fucked Up World. And I, you know, without the you, you know, little asterisk instead of the you. And I guess it's a way to uh, get some instant, oh, wow, what's that kind of a thing. And I thought, okay, this is just going to be a bunch of pop spirituality BS, right? But since I respect the, the uh, publicist over there who gave it to me, I thought, okay, well, we're going to give it a list. So, or a read, rather. I'm thinking I'm back in the music business. Um, so I did, and then arranged to talk with him. Because I saw some stuff in it that looked, wow, this is, you know, pretty great way to uh, ex explicate the teachings of mindfulness, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and life. So it turns out that, you know, Tim was an extraordinarily substantial uh, guy. And uh, he has had enormous trials as a human. Uh, as many of us do, but this was particularly around uh, the illness, long illness of his wife and eventual death. Uh, so that's quite a story that runs through the whole book. And he still has a sense of humor and love and compassion. I mean, it was terrific. So it made me think about how I prejudged that one right away. Completely wrong. And uh, I remember a time I was with uh, one of our mentors that we were in India with, with Neem Karoli Baba. His name is K.C. Tuari. I've talked about him on the podcast before. If you've been to Krishna's concerts, he talks about him as his Indian father. And I was with him in a very remote part of the Himalayas, a place called Bageshwar. And he had built this beautiful Hanuman temple there, had built. And we were just sitting by the river chatting. And then somebody comes down and says, oh, there's this... Uh, a Swami, this Baba, is up and uh, you should go uh, hang out with him. And uh, he, uh, he might have called him Panditji, you know, so I got the idea. Okay, I'm just going to get, because I'm, you know, a white, young Westerner. I'm going to get spirituality, Hinduism 101, actually. And we went in and we sat with him and Tuari and I. And indeed, he gave us Hinduism 101. And uh, I won't go into trying to copy the accent because it's not nice. Uh, but it was, it was very archetypical. So I'm getting bored sitting there thinking I knew this was going to happen. And I look over next to me at Tuari. He's sitting with this rapt attention. Like this is the first time he's ever heard. Tuari was like a knocked out yogi who used to go into samadhi all the time right so i'm like holy gee. so anyhow the thing is over and we get out of there i said i knew he was just going to give us that hinduism 101 rap and tuari said what every word is like the first time you ever hear it take that perspective he didn't quite say it like that but that was exactly what he meant and here it is how many years? Well, I don't know when I, I did that. Maybe 20 years, 25 years ago with him. 
and here we are. I went ahead and completely judged this book and Tim. And, uh, and basically, I just, I fell in love with Tim, okay? He's just terrific. He's a student of Thich Nhat Hanh and has done a lot of real practice. So uh, he's proof. And, you know, one thing to mention here about practice, like, you know, when things start to go shitty and you think, well, I better start practicing now, it's not likely to help that much in the moment. But years and years of practice as a regular thing, so when that moment hits, and we're not talking about death, just any kind of really tough situation. Having practice really makes a difference. So, and Tim is proof of this. So, uh, here, uh, lovely, lovely man, really. And uh, so here's the here's the chat between Tim Desmond and myself on Mind Grow on the Be Here Now Network. Hi everyone, Mind Rolling, and I'm back, and I'm back with. Uh, a new guest, new at least to mind rolling, but I'm sure many of you out there either have known about Tim. Tim Desmond, first of all, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, uh, Tim, this book that you put out—I'll just tell the story, okay? I went to the pub, uh, a publisher, which is this Harper one, and because uh, uh, we publish Ram Dass books through them. And they said, oh, you know, they they like the podcast and everything. And they said, well, we have somebody really, you're going to like his book, How to Stay Human in a Fucked Up World. I go, you really put that on the cover? And it, you know what, Tim? The book is How to Stay Human in a Fucked Up World. You, yeah. You know, it's real. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. So great to have you. Um. Yeah, a little bit of where do you come from to where you yeah. are now? Sure. <clears throat> I, mean, I grew up in Boston um, in like a single mom, uh, struggled with alcoholism. We were homeless for a little while. And I ended up <clears throat> getting into college on an athletic scholarship. Like I, I wouldn't have been able to get into college otherwise. I you know, had really bad grades. Um, ended up getting... What did you do? Yeah. What, what sport? Everything. Uh, really? Basketball, football, lacrosse, wow. uh, track, everything. <laughs> so cool. um, but then I got to college, and when I was there, um, in a political science class, I was introduced to the writings of Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm. And what I saw was kind of exactly what was missing from my life. Just like... <clears throat> mindfulness and compassion, just like the, the ability to experience freedom, the ability to sort of be comfortable in your own skin, mm -hmm. the ability to sort of, uh, to be like a, a force for good in the world. It was just like, I was like, that's what I want. That's, that's like mm -hmm. the kind of life that appeals to me. And I ended up kind of quitting everything else. And, um, basically just followed Thich Nhat Hanh around for, at least 10 years. Really? Um, wow. Yeah. That's so great. Yeah. Wow. Oh, uh, one of our friends, Roshi Joan Halifax, 
mm-hmm. who teaches at uh, retreats that we do and so on. Mm-hmm. She told us, she spent time with Day as well and told us yeah. lots of beautiful stories. And yeah. we love his books. We even did a, a theme. Every uh, retreat that we do have a theme and we used No Death, mm-hmm. No Fear. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we love him. So that's mm-hmm. so great. Wonderful. Because um, some people, I mean, you obviously, there was uh, certainly a bunch of suffering going on as you grew up. Yeah, yeah. And uh, how far did that go to, boy, if you meet something, you just, you're going to wake up like really yeah. quick, right? If I yeah. mean, your karmas have to be ripe for that, but still. I think it was bringing together. So my, my mother started in Alcoholics Anonymous when I was eight years old. Mm. So she was an alcohol active alcoholic until I was eight. And so, um, I think it was the coming together of growing up really poor in really rough parts of Boston. Um, just having a lot of anger and fear and, uh, and kind of anxiety, um, that suffering that was in me, uh, with growing up in a 12-step family where, with, with this idea that like personal development is a thing, that like you can choose how you want to be mm. and set goals and then, and then work toward that. And I think that when I've, when, that set me up for being able to recognize, oh, this is, this is a life that I want. Um, the, the way of living that Thich Nhat Hanh is describing is exactly what I want and nothing else appeals to me in a way that's even close. Mm. That doesn't happen all the time, yeah. <laughs> by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a bunch Which of... Which I never understand. I feel like I, I, I get confused. I'm just like, <laughs> like uh, someone encounters the Dharma and they're just like, yeah, but also other stuff. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it takes yeah. that uh, one-pointed focus, yeah. doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, because I remember myself, it's what happened. When I met Ramdas, I just okay. I need to get where you were to see yeah. that being, bar nothing, you know. Yeah. And so I, I well know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Um, but then, now the book has a thread in it uh, that's some really tough, tough suffering. Yeah. And that's related to your wife. Yeah. And uh, I found that, I, and there was. I mean, a lot of despair, obviously. I, I mean, how much you speak about this? I mean, well, it's in the book, so you must be speaking about this sure, whole situation. Sure. Yeah, who had cancer, Tim's wife, yeah. and a lot of darkness and a lot of despair around that for anybody. And yeah. uh, so, this is what I love. This this one line is a great line. It should be on a T-shirt, Tim. If I could tap into something deeper than despair in me then I'd have something to offer the people I love most. Yeah. And of course that can all be expanded from there into strangers and, you know, the whole uh, Buddhist Bodhisattva thing. Uh, yeah. That, uh, so yeah, a little bit of when that happened, what was really going on and how did you manage on the day to day, which is certainly yeah. what people, all of us want to know about. Yeah. I mean, when I, um, I can say that when my wife and I got married, we were both living in the Bay area and I had a, just a lot of really fortunate circumstances in my life. Um, 
she was directing an environmental education center in Marin County. Um, and I was able to, you know, I was working part-time as a, as a private practice therapist and just was able to practice really as much as I wanted. I would spend at least two months out of the year with Thich Nhat Hanh, wherever he was. And my practice at that point in my life was really about how deep can I go with this sort of like effortlessness, fearlessness, just like really about depth. And then things really changed. Hmm. How so? And the focus of my practice changed. Well, so one wonderful thing that happened. So we, we ended up leaving the Bay Area and moving to New Hampshire. A couple of friends of ours were, have, had left monastic life and they wanted to start a retreat center. They ended up getting some land in New Hampshire and we started where I now live, um, Morning Sun Mindfulness Center, which is like a, it's sort of like a monastery for lay people. It's like a, an oh, intentional, yeah. yeah, it's an intentional community um, that holds a retreat center. Um, people can find it uh, if they just look up Morning Sun Mindfulness Center on, on the internet. Um, and so think, and so uh, we, I built a house, like I built my house with my own hands and wow. had we had a baby and I was still able to really practice. We brought my son to Plum Village for the summer when he was one. Wow. And then my wife was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer um, right around the, t- the time that our son turned two. And pretty soon thereafter, um, my practice was less about like um, finding pure effortlessness or uh, th- this type of um, uh, you know dissolving into interbeing, and a lot more about kind of getting through the day. Yeah. And um, oh so that's one of the things that I wrote about now. So I, uh, I wrote this book in the middle of that struggle um, as she was going through uh, struggles with cancer. Um, she passed away this last December oh. in San Francisco. And so, um, mm. and I've been back since then, but um, back in New Hampshire since then. Mm but with my son and um but when i so when i'm talking about deeper than despair it's this this recognition of that the intensity of pain whatever we're going through in life the intensity of pain is just it's tapping into the energy of life in us Right? It's tapping into something that's, that just feels extremely precious. And it doesn't need to be understood as just, oh, that's ego clinging, or that's something that we shouldn't be doing, or that's sort of like that's based in ignorance. Because um, seen from the perspective of interbeing or seen from the perspective of non-self, that energy is still there. The energy of, of like a loved one dying like that, um, like the the love and the loss that are there are still, that's part of just the mammalian body going through the experience of loss. But it's, it's recognizing that it's not separate from love. Hmm. And I think that that was kind of 
over and over. And it was incredibly difficult every single time that I went through it as this practice, but it's kind of this, this intense experience of aversion and non-acceptance. And the aversion and non-acceptance was pointing me to how much I love my wife. And when I recognized that that was the nature of the energy, then I could just appreciate it and I could feel thankful for it. And it, it turned from something precious. It, it turned from something that was like excruciating to something that was like this precious and ephemeral. Mm. Mm. Wow. You know, we, we do talk a lot about uh, at our retreats and particularly Ramdas the humans have the ability to be on more than one plane of consciousness at the same time, which is what you just described. You're in it and you're feeling it. You're not avoiding it. You're not chasing it, but you're in it at the same time is that the other plane of, 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 of love is, is one good, you know, it's uh, the soul plane. He'll call it, you know, love, wisdom, joy, peace, like compassion. So, yeah, but that's a difficult thing to do because in the heat of the moment, right, or in, in the heat of something excruciating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's, for me, I feel extremely grateful for training because that's like, um, mm. I, I feel like I, often when I think about spiritual practice, I think about like one of the metaphors that I think about is uh, martial arts. In the sense of like the worst time to try to learn martial arts is when you need it. (laughs) That if you, if you wait until you need it, you're never going to succeed. You're never going to develop. You're never going to like, you're never going to be able to learn it. Like we have to practice in, we, we have to have been practicing before the moment of extreme need. Or it's mm. just not there, and we can't expect it to be. Mm. Um, and it's that like, it's like if I've been practicing and training myself in my ability to to look at whatever suffering, to look at whatever there is in the world, whatever manifestation. Like, for you know, the 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 core of our practice is whatever manifests can I see the beauty and love that's there, right? Mm-hmm. If it's beautiful, if it's ugly, if it's terrifying, can I see through that and see what it really is? And I've, if I've been training myself, then in that moment, it's possible. And if I haven't, then it's just kind of like, okay, well, that's just, that's just got to become motivation to train myself, you know, to, to sort of for, for next time. Or we're all just little human guys. It's okay. Yeah. And yeah. move on, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. In, in the, let me quote something else from you that I really loved in the book. Once I understand that the suffering in the world can turn me into someone I don't want to be, I become extremely motivated to find a way to stay human. And the, both those things in there at one time, I didn't know that. I don't want to stop caring and I don't want to drown in anger and bitterness. I want to stay present and be a force for good. I want to become Thich Nhat Hanh's banana leaf 
which is another story that you'll read in the book. But yeah, basically, I want to become Thich Nhat Hanh. I think you could have ended it right there. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's um, very astute, Tim. Very insightful. There's something in there that I feel like is important. I feel like that, um, especially in the spiritual world, especially in the kind of world of, of spiritual seekers mm. that I feel like is important. I feel like in the world of spiritual seekers, there's this possibility of letting other people define what your goal is. Mm. Like wanting to know, wanting to know like from other people, what is, what's enlightenment? What am I even going for here? And when you put that in other people's hands, you cut yourself off from what actually drives your practice. How do you mean put that in other people's hands? I mean, like, like instead of asking yourself, why am I practicing? Instead of asking yourself, like, what change is actually driving me to be here on this retreat? Like, what am I looking for? What is, what's, what's driving me? But instead being like, how am I supposed to practice? What's the right way to practice? What is the goal? Mm. As opposed, as, as though it was somehow disembodied and not personal. Mm. And I feel like when you think that way, I mean, I think that those can be really valid questions. But I think it's like we can forget about like, there's a reason there's a reason that whoever's listening to this podcast there's a reason that you're listening right it's like there's something that you want there's something that's driving you there's some aspiration and you don't necessarily you don't need to think of that as attachment it can be aspiration or, or whatever but it's like there's something the life in you is seeking something and it's just like a- answering for yourself what are you seeking and letting that shape your practice is kind of what I'm saying there. Mm. Yeah, and another way to say that might be, actually, it refer to the title of the book. Yeah. Uh, How a fucked up human can stay human in a fucked up world. That yeah. could have been it too. Yeah. So once you realize that's going on and you just have had enough yeah. of the self-interest that yeah. we all are in on a day-to-day, you do nothing but find that practice. And, and of course, we talk about mindfulness all the time. Unfortunately, it's, boy, that word has been, it's like yeah. love now. Terrible, yeah. terrible word. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, you, um, and, and certainly what Thich Nhat Hanh uses to describe uh, a way of life re- relating to life is mindfulness. But you say, I don't even like that word. Too many people use it completely other than what uh, Thich Nhat Hanh represents. Well, that's a good starting point about what mindfulness really is. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's like one of the reasons that like, yeah, I shy away from the word. I, I hate using words that people, if it's like, if it's a word that somebody already has a meaning for, then it's just going to be confusing to me. <laughs> yeah. If it's like, if I'm trying, I'm trying to describe something, right. Yeah. What am I trying to describe? I'm trying to describe a way of relating to life. Like what, what's inspiring for me, you know, like, why am I doing this? Mm. Right. Is there's a way of relating to life, to this human situation that I find incredibly inspiring. And 
how to describe what that is. If I use a word that you that like that has other meanings to people, then it can just confuse it. And so the idea of like, okay, I'm just gonna call this book like how to stay human. Because what I want to emphasize here is like our ability to be in touch with life. To be in touch with life in a way that like has all of the characteristics of our of our humanity, that there's a there's a freedom, that there is like a, a capacity for joy and pain, that there's like an ability to experience the whole spectrum of, of what it is to be human rather than kind of saying that there's just like this narrow band that I'm finding acceptable of like, yeah. 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 Um, but then again, in terms of, in practical terms and, yeah. You spend a lot of time at Plum Village practicing, yeah. And meditation is certainly a, a central to that practice, I would say. Uh, yeah. By the way, anybody who doesn't know about walking meditation, somehow that image just came into my mind. I yeah. thought of Thich Nhat Hanh, and then I thought I must have seen something recently of him doing walking meditation. Yeah. Uh, that's a great thing for people to do. Can yeah. you, you? You've done it, have you not? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Can you just describe yeah. just right here and now a little yeah. walking meditation? Yeah. If you're listening to this and you're walking or if you're listening to this and you're driving. So um, I want to I want to give a little context. Um, when Thich Nhat Hanh first became a, a monk when he was 16 years old in Vietnam in the 40s, um, he was given a little book of poems and he was asked to, his first training as a monastic was to memorize these poems. And there was a poem for everything that you might do throughout your day, a poem for walking, a poem for putting on your robes, a poem for eat, for, for serving your food and a different poem for eating and a different poem for having finished your food. Um, and the idea is that you were supposed to memorize these poems and recite them to bring your practice, to bring your intentionality into literally every moment of your life. And some of us um, wanna, some of us hear that and they're like, yes, every moment, that's what I'm going for. Yeah. And other people are like, can I start with one? It's like, <laughs> sure, start with one, yeah. with, with whatever you want. Mm. Um, but whether you're walking or whether you're driving right now, um, first, it's possible to walk in such a way that you're not trying to get anywhere. It's possible to walk in such a way that you have arrived exactly where you are in this moment. You're walking not to get to where you aren't, but you're walking in many ways to enjoy the experience of walking and walking to arrive here and now. And so with each step, there are different sort of phrases that we can match to our steps that work for different people. But um, sometimes with each step, we could say, um, with my left foot, I have arrived. And with my right foot, I am home. With my left foot in the here, and with my right foot in the now. 
And so with each step, I am here. I'm just where I am. And um, another way of, of uh, practicing walking meditation that Thich Nhat Hanh will sometimes describe is um, that each step you're kissing the earth with your feet. Mm. That it's this experience of like here, of, of relating to the earth in this loving way. And um, my experience of walking meditation is really breaking down the, the difference between practice and not practice, right? Um, I don't want my practice to be a thing that's separate from my life. Because for me, when my practice is separate from my life, there, it's really hard to bridge. It's like I can become this um, in the moments in my life when that's happened, how I describe myself as someone who's like really full of love and compassion so long as no one is interacting with me and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not doing anything. Yeah, right. And then as soon as I have to do something, I'm back to the neurotic, short-tempered, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And so if, so, and if that's what I want from my practice, great. But for me, that's not what I want. What I want for my practice is to like, one of my, one of my favorite teachers, um, Joanne Friday was the teacher, the first teacher that I met from the Plum Village tradition. And she's, uh, she lives in Rhode Island near, near where I went to college. My experience of Joanne when I was 20 years old and still, everybody that meets Joanne, one of the first things, one of, one of the things that they'll say is like, she loves me more than almost anybody I know. Hmm. Like you can meet her once and you can have this experience of like, wow, she authentically just loves me. And that's the kind of thing that I would like to, to bring into the world. Like that's like what I feel like would be a good use of a human life. As they say in India, Ram Ram. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm so, totally with you. Yeah. So it's like, okay, when I'm walking, if, if when I'm walking, I'm not, oh yeah, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I'm trying to get there. Then that becomes like the metaphor for my whole life. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I'm, I'm trying to get there. And instead it's like, um, it's this practice of this is where I'm supposed to be. And then in the next step, and this is where I'm supposed to be. And everything that manifests in and around me is exactly how it's supposed to be. And I'm arriving in it. Um, and so that's, and so, and it's the same thing for when you're driving. It's this practice of I'm right here. I'm not trying to get to a different place. I am where I am. And I'll, and then whenever, when I arrive, uh, you know, when I turn off the car, I'm there. And when I'm driving, I'm here. And it's this experience of like, yeah, it's, my life isn't made up of not there yet. <laughs> yeah, or separation. Or separation, yeah. 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 But, you know, not but. I don't know why I said that. I just want to go back to some, you know, like a beautiful walking meditation. Everybody, by the way, absolutely take that. Maybe we'll put it together in a nice little way and offer it out there. And, and people can use it. But 
it's very effective, especially if you're one of those people who says, I can't meditate because I get yeah. too many thoughts. Yeah. Okay, get in that line, okay, yeah. about that. But it, if, if you can if you know, the, the movement yeah. sometimes makes it uh, easier to get to that, at least that one-pointed state, just those kind of things, aside from being here now. Yeah, yeah. It's all about be here now, ain't it, in the end? Yeah, um, yeah. But you also talk about uh, uh, just a little bit about awareness, because to me, you know, you say uh, even with the best intentions, everything can go astray unless you have awareness. Awareness that means awareness, especially of motivations, awareness of this of yeah. the self involvement, self self referential, all of it. Mm-hmm. So th- that to me, uh, Ramdas uses the witness witness from the spiritual heart soul whatever you want to call that thing that everybody calls something else uh that there's no judgment you know you're not killing yourself every second it's a calm abiding with whatever phenomenon happens to float by you and so awareness witness that that's to me extraordinarily important to have that as part of the perspective of your of day-to-day everything is the path. Yeah. I mean, that when you describe like people who struggle with meditation, one of the things that I do when I'm teaching retreats is like, um, the idea that, that somehow you're that like a good meditation is when you're brain dead. Like that's for me, that's not the goal of meditation. For me, the goal of meditation is learning how to love whatever manifests you know, it's learning how to love moments of stillness and clarity and learning how to love moments of like confusion and fear and Mm. sort of um, dispersion. And if I can learn how to love those things, then what I find is that I'm not that like the, the moments of stillness and clarity come when my mammalian body feels like there's there's nothing there's no threat you know the the mammal that i that i'm you know the sort of the mammal body that i'm manifesting right now it's it's really interested in is there something unacceptable happening is there something that is a threat and this sort of mammalian body that's uh, that i'm manifesting if there's no threat if there's nothing unacceptable it, it knows how to relax and enjoy, but it's really interested in looking for threats or looking for something unacceptable. And if I'm making new unacceptable categories, like thinking too much is unacceptable, it's a threat to my meditation goals, then I'm just, I'm perpetuating that distress. Mm-hmm. But instead, if I can teach myself that like, Whatever it is, whatever this body and mind are manifesting is like, that's it. That's, that's our practice to learn how to love that. Now, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, this is Zok Chen at this point. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's our Lama Suryadas' thing. Okay, so I'm going to, yeah, you guys, you Buddhist guys that are really advanced practitioners and yeah, Zok Chen being 
right alongside of Zen. Everybody out there in terms of uh, degree of difficulty, okay? Yeah. I had a whole thing with Roshi. I, she said, you know, this the bhakti thing is cool, but, you know, eventually the duality's got to go, right? And I go, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, you, maybe you've been at it maybe a, a half a billion more lifetimes than I, and it's all fine for you, but I'm holding on for dear life, Roshi, okay, to that yeah. blanket of that baba. So, yeah. Uh, uh, no. So, what I wanted to say, though, I, yeah. that's all true, folks. But uh, yeah. the reality of uh, everything you said is absolutely fantastic, Tim. I just have to help out people like me out there. Okay. So when yeah. it was about okay, I I do have to get my house in order a little bit. I can't be chasing every fucking thought. Yeah. and gluing myself to it, okay? Yeah. So I'm going to yeah. come back to the breath. I'm going to yeah. let go, and I'm going to remember I can always come back. And eventually, I'm not daydreaming for 10, 15 minutes with whatever fantasy or things that I think I need to do. I, I mean, this was some time ago, thank God. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I, I want everybody to know everything that Tim just said is absolutely true at both the highest and the relative levels. Yeah. Please do get that monkey mind in order in, so that you, you know, we can move into a more spacious uh, relationship with the phenomena in our head and outside it. Well, yeah, for, for me, the, um, when, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm working with someone who's having a real hard time just being deeply lost. I mean, I work as a therapist mm. um, or o- often have. I can talk a little bit more about what I've been doing lately. Mm. Um, but as, and a lot of what I've been doing lately is sort of like teaching, uh, sort of, uh, teaching therapists and teaching peer counselors. Um, I, I can go into more details there, but, but basically when I'm working with somebody who's in a tremendous amount of suffering and has no background in the practice, the first teaching that I, that I, that I offer is not the breath and it's not stillness. The first teaching that I offer is self-compassion. The first teaching that I offer is whatever, whatever thought that you're getting lost in, come back to your body and recognize that that thought is being driven by distress in your body, suffering that is in your body. Send love to, to the distress in your body and come back to that over and over. And all you need to do is recognize that whatever thought there is, what, like you don't need to, in my experience, um, the metaphor that Thich Nhat Hanh offers is that we're like a tree in a storm. That our thoughts are like the branches getting whipped around and our, the body is like the trunk of the tree. We can, we can anchor in the body in those moments of distress. And basically it's just that like, thoughts change so quickly that it feels impossible to, to sort of watch them without a tremendous amount of training. But coming back to the tension, to the agitation, to the heaviness in the body and being able to bring love there, if we can, then that, that can... I feel like for a lot of people... Um, as an introductory practice, 
it meets what they're actually finding in their body, which is not stillness, which is anxiety. Mm. And that if I, there's a way of holding that anxiety, we talk about holding your suffering like we hold, like you hold a crying baby. Mm. Um, so in our little tradition, yeah. we, we are actually, we're doing that. And one great example is Krishna Das. Do you know the chanter, Krishna Das? Yeah, sure. So he he's exemplifies, he's doing his practice for him. He's not entertaining. And that's why he's got, you know, a lot of people who want to mm-hmm. just be in that, immerse in that experience. And they get an, exactly what you just described happens. Yeah. They, they're just feeling this opening inside themselves. And for many of them, it's, it's, it's incredible over the years how many have opened up in a, in a major way. And uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, uh, I think, well, that's what in India now, of course, they say the name. Just say the name. Mm-hmm. Chant the name. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, 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 Hare Hare. Uh, so heart yeah. is definitely... Uh, has to be nurtured in all of this, and along the lines of what you were just saying, you also have something. I don't want to, I mean, the you know right awareness, whether there is a such a thing. I'm not even sure there is. Uh, no, I don't it, think it's it's, 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 it's describing it's, something. It's describing a. It's describing an experience. Yeah, I feel like it's it's trying to describe an experience. Yeah, that's around consciousness. Okay, what are yeah. we talking about there? In that, yeah, realm? yeah. Well, you talk about radical acceptance in the yeah. book. I think that's also, I like that term, radical acceptance. Yeah. Because it's no pussy kind of thing to just. Yeah. Oh yeah, we're gonna, you know, talk about what that means to you. Um, I think that. Like for for me, radical acceptance. It, it that comes back to what you were talking about is like like with a bigger goal. Like um, the beginning of practice is can I find some type of acceptance of like even in a relatively sheltered moment, sitting on my cushion in, you know, in a quiet space, can, can I accept one breath can I, can I accept one moment? Hmm. And I think that that is the beginning of our practice of like learning what it feels like to relate to life with the experience of yes. Um, and, and that what, what the witness or what, what, what my job is here is to learn how to love the manifestation just how it is and can i can i in one moment experience that but for me radical acceptance is taking that to its logical conclusion which is the ability to accept all of it the ability to look at the entire beautiful and um, hideous world that we inhabit and to be able to see that the mind in me 
like the the sort of um my brain has evolved to say yes to some things and no to others and that's the only reason that it that the body gets to keep living right if the bot if if the brain didn't have a way of saying yes to this no to that you know no, like okay there's a bear over there get away here's some berries go over there Mm-hmm. Like that core in, in the yoga kara, we, we talk about manas as like the core mental function of, uh, of making these distinctions. Yes and no. Uh, me, not me. And that, that without that, a biological system can't function. And, and um, you know, neuroscientists talk about that at a really deep level. Even a single celled organism can't function without some degree of me, not me. Yes to this, no to that. Can we see that that is a beautiful part of the energy of life perpetuating itself, but not something to get caught in? <laughs> Can we see that that sort of yes to this, no to that is, is life fucking around and trying to figure itself out? But there's, there's, no, transcend, there's no sort of transcendent wisdom in that. You know, the, the, the mind in me that says yes to some things and no to others doesn't know what the fuck it's talking about. It doesn't know what's really good. It doesn't know what's really bad. It's just trying to make it up. It's trying to survive. And that's fine. And I can see that there's something beautiful in that. That life everywhere is trying to do that. But if I can watch it without, it's like, it's like watching the the play. It's like it's like you know like Lila. It's like watching the play without getting so caught. Like watching the play get just caught up enough that you can that you really appreciate the beauty, but not so caught up that you really feel like when the hero dies, it's like, why did I come here? Like mm-hmm. losing losing touch with it's a play. It was there to entertain you. <laughs> and so radical acceptance for me is that. It's when we let go of our attachment to yes to this, no to that, when we let go to our attachment that my brain knows what's good and what's bad, somehow transcendentally, and instead we just see life trying to figure itself out, then we can be like, yeah, there it is. Actually, you you did give a thing in the book about why humans are, you said they're just dumb, okay? And this yeah. kind of dumbness seems to be a fundamental consequence of how our brains are designed. Yeah. Okay, that we're going to believe in that me, and we're going to, you know, just absolutely push away anything yeah. that is at all discordant, even a, yeah. a bad chord. I do yeah. that because until yeah. I've been in music so long. Oh yeah. God, oh, tough stuff, huh? But I mean, it's like, it's like when you do that, right, that's it. That like, that's a bad chord. I hate bad chords. It's like, mm-hmm. yes, beautiful. That's what your brain's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. That's how beautiful music comes about is that yep, distinction. Right. Yeah, right. It's like saying like, thank you, brain. Thank you for hating that bad chord. I love you for that. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Sense of humor is important because you yeah. watch that stuff go down. Um, let's talk uh, now. I had no idea that uh, maybe I read the. I didn't read the material. I re- went through the book, but sure. Wall Street, Occupy, 
you were like yeah. a major part of that. And there's you know, this great story in there about yeah. people doing that for all the wrong reasons, which yeah. is a common theme in activism. Yeah, I, um, so from the time I was in college, I was um, involved in the World Trade Organization protests, kind of going back to, you know, Seattle in 99. And then like through that whole movement, the um, all the way up through uh, to Occupy Wall Street and, and to the present still, I'm involved. Basically, I, I spent my 20s going back and forth between uh, grassroots demonstrations and, you know, uh, organizing protests. And then I'd go back to the monastery for a few months until there was another protest to go to. Really? Wow. Um, and I would just back and, bounce back and forth. Um, for, for me, um, you know, the second noble truth, there are causes of suffering. And I think one thing that we're recognizing now is that um, one, Thich Nhat Hanh would talk about if you, uh, the subjective and objective, uh, if, if you say that, if you say the mind causes the world, that's discrimination. If you say the world causes the mind, that's discrimination. That the mind and the world cause each other. Um, and that giving primacy to one is a mistake. But I, I would say that for me, there's like two things that draw me to um, kind of radical uh, political organizing. And the first is, it's the coming together of people who believe that a better world is possible. And I want to be in that. And I want to contribute my energy to that. Because with the idea that if enough of us could imagine a better world and begin to act in that way, we could begin to develop one. And then also recognizing that some of the people that are working in deepest solidarity with people who are suffering, they do not, they're not being nourished by the Dharma and they are hungry and they are starving for wellness and compassion and, and they're burned out. And like the Bodhisattva Kshidigarbha, who, or Jizo, who goes into hell realms in order to bring compassion to people who are, to, to beings that are in tremendous suffering. It's like, I see these activists as people who are, who are refusing to let go, to abandon the intense suffering in the world. And what I want to bring to them is love. Mm. And I want to like, I don't want to get lost in that and I don't want to be burned out myself, but I want to like offer some of the energy that I find so beneficial in my life to people who are really using it for the betterment of all. We talk about we, you know, the liberation of all beings. When you go to when you when you get involved in this kind of organizing, these are people who are really in in a very concrete way living their lives for the benefit of all beings. And it's like I want to empower that. Mm. How do you manage though the the day to day? I mean, you describe in the book a bunch of people, yeah, angry, lost, yeah. 
polarized. Everything, and in that sense, nothing of what they want to accomplish will ever happen. Now, they, you know, you can't, it's hard to be a saint in the city, Bruce Springsteen said. Uh, But uh, the reality is, uh, well, I mean, you're there and you're sharing you with them. And hopefully that will give some light to the fact that unless you work on, you know, you have to practice yourself before you're going to be able to fully engage with another human being, especially if they're on the other side. So difficult yeah, stuff. I, I mean, I think like really being able to step into a place with so much suffering, like being really in a place where you feel like your practice is solid. I mean, uh, so I've been working at Google for the past eight, six months or so, eight, six, eight months. Um, I find it's way harder to, I've been, I've been leading a project at Google that I can tell you a little bit about, but um, yeah. I find it's way harder to maintain my practice uh, in Google than it was to maintain it um, in like a, you know, like a, um, in a riot surrounded by, you know, police with tear gas and like that I can ground, (laughs) but at the Google campus, it's, uh, it's, I find it's, it's, it's harder because it's harder to tap into what are we doing? Where is the humanity? It's so easy for me. I mean, it's not easy. I don't want to say that. That's, it's possible for me in the middle of chaos in, uh, in like a, in a protest to be like, to find, so what the fuck is happening here? Why are we even doing this? And it's like, we're doing this because we care. Um, the project that I've been working at at Google is, uh, it's actually, I'm, I'm leaving in about a month to sort of start it as, a, as like an independent startup. But I've I, um, been working on a project. Google has an internal incubator called Area 120. And they've been funding a project that's basically, scary. I had a vision. It's scary sounding. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, uh, it's, I've had a vision for a long time. The idea that like, what if um, what if everyone in the world had abundant access to just empathy, like peer counseling? What if there were people that could make a living wage for offering deep listening and empathy and, and sort of peer counseling um, in a way that anyone who wanted to could just access that? And so um, I was giving a talk from a previous book at the Google campus and someone, you know, I connected with someone there and we pitched the idea and they funded it. And now it's, I'm going to turn it into a separate business because I'm realizing that Google is not a place for idealism uh, in the way that I'm wanting to hold it. But, um, but the, the, the vision for, for me is the idea of like creating a, creating a world in which, Anytime you just need um, some love and compassion and some empathy that there, that there's someone there who has that capacity to offer. Another Ram Ram. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So who thought of this title to the book? Was it you or did they say, Hey, we'll sell a million copies. We put fuck on it. 
It's funny because it's like, um, so I, they uh, Harper actually bought a different book. Oh. So I I put out um, I put out a a proposal for a book that was called Mindfulness for People Who Don't Meditate. Um, I've been working with a lot of therapy clients and a lot of psychologists who were didn't weren't really interested in meditation, and I was found I was finding that I could talk with them about practice about dharma about all these things so long as i didn't use any of those words that they were able to tap into that energy tap that consciousness and it was easy like they could they could do it and so that was the idea and um so harper bought that book and then my editor was like so this is kind of for a niche she's like if you were going to write a book for everybody what would that be is this Gideon, and, may I ask? Yeah, uh, um, Gideon and then um, Sidney Rogers, who works with him. Right. And, and sort of like the two of them um, were basically saying like, so if you were going to write for everybody, what would it be? And it's like, yeah, it was this. It was like, it was very clearly just like, this is like the, like in a, in a really hard moment, all the ways that we want to be in this world, all the ways that the world breaks our hearts. And how can we love? And how can we find joy? And how can we live that, you know, that, that um, open way that we want to live in this world that just constantly breaks our hearts? And like, that's what really turns me on in terms of, you know, what, what our practice is all about. I just have to, I have to read when I said about the title sure. of the book, there was one, there's one paragraph yeah, that yeah. I have to read. And, but you got to know that, uh, at one point Tim had a, a relationship with a woman who maybe wasn't right at all. Yeah. And so it's a great read in the book, and I won't tell you about it, except to he, of course, eventually you woke up, and yeah, okay, maybe his friends are telling him and everything, you know. Yeah. I, I'm completely related with that. Um, yeah. And here, the title of this chapter is, or maybe I wasn't a dumb fuck. Yeah. I acknowledge that I definitely seem like an irrational, inscrutable dumb fuck while I wasted precious years of my, lo- my youth in a miserable relationship. However, a lot of people do things like this. Do they not? Oh, my. We sabotage ourselves, sabotage ourselves, act against our better judgment, or fail to do what we completely know would make life better. Why do we do that? That's part of that uh, reptilian mammalian thing that we got going, right? Um, Just saying that we're being stupid doesn't help us. That is a great thing to bring up, Tim. Yeah. Absolutely. We need a way to make sense of these behaviors so we can hopefully do something different or at least not feel so guilty. That this is down to earth. This is the kind of stuff I love to share. Uh, Because we'll go, you stupid fuck. Yeah. As if that's going to, you know, as if you just went to the Catholic priest and confessed, yeah. we're okay yeah. now. But yeah. there's no sense of uh, motivation, no sense of the, the grabbing and the me and putting myself before everything else. You know? Yeah. So I love that. 
Yeah. I mean, that's for me, that's like the, my favorite, like the, the most transformative parts of practice. I feel like the deepest transformation for me, like, like dissolving into the infinite is, is more the result of letting go of hating myself, (laughs) letting go of blaming myself. Mm -hmm. And it's like this, um, the moment of there's something that I really fucking hate about myself that I keep doing. And if I can find the beauty in that, if I can see that it's actually this, it's life trying to like is confused and trying to figure itself out. And if I can see that there's actually beauty in that, and that's what I try to talk about in that chapter, as th- from that moment of like, oh, there you are, that the forgiveness and the sort of un- the, the untying of the knot. And then it's like, oh, the, the, the sort of higher states of consciousness are just like, yeah, the, those are... As soon as we stop hating ourselves, those aren't, they're not even that hard. Things change. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Last thing. Uh, There's so many things to him in the book. Yeah. What Tell us about a story when it's no longer being supervised. Okay. I love that. I mean, we talk, uh, you know, we're working, I'm working on stuff around the movie of me to the movie of us. It's uh, with a friend of mine another podcaster and uh, who I'm going to tell about you. It's Duncan yeah. Trussell. I don't know if you know who Duncan is, but mm-hmm. he's wonderful. Uh, so that storyline yeah. is so completely and it complete, it's like a cocoon yeah. that we live in. So yeah. what happens when it, what did you say? Uh, when it's no longer being supervised, what happened? Yeah. So one thing that I'm really interested in is there, there's a, um, so I, I have a somewhat of a background in neuroscience and the, the area of neuroscience that's really kind of exploding right now is computational neuroscience. And that's actually one of the ways that I connected with Google, but that um, people in the worlds of machine learning and artificial intelligence that are, um, that are making contributions to what we understand about the brain. And so the idea of what we're getting is we're not just, you can't really understand how these, how the neural networks like translate into these stories that we're telling ourselves if you're just looking at an MRI. Because all you're looking, you're, just, you're looking at areas of the brain light up. It's, there's not le- a level of granularity that allows for us to see uh, these deeper insights. But when we start to combine biological data with um, computer models, we can see more. So uh, basically, let me go into your question. Um, The human mind needs to create a story out of every experience, and especially every experience that's deemed in some way emotionally uh, relevant. Right, something happens, and there's some sort of an emotional response. We need to make a story. There's a, a Kurt Vonnegut uh, quote in um, Catch Cradle. There, there's a line in Bacchanalism. Uh, it's like, um, 
Uh, fish got to swim, bird got to fly, man got to sit and wonder why, why, why. Um, fish got to rest, bird got to land, man got to tell himself that he understand. And I think that cognitive neuroscientists are talking about that in, a, in the same way, just we can't not make up a story. It's literally impossible for the human brain hmm. to not create an explanation. Why did that happen? We do it instantaneously and often outside of our awareness. In, in, in many ways, these sort of um, cognitive uh, and, and computational neuroscientists, basically they say, what your, your, your heart pumps blood, your brain creates models of why things happen. That's, that's, that's its job as an organ. It tries to model why did whatever the hell is going on, why? So that you can maybe navigate the world a little better. So anything that's happening in our lives. Um, so if, if my mother, when I'm a child, has this pattern of intimacy of praising me when I'm exceptional and ignoring me every other moment, my little child brain is being like, why? What's the, what's the clear, like, how can I create a model that will predict her behavior? Well, it must be love is something that you deserve when you're exceptional and that you don't deserve other times. That would really fit. And then what happens is initially when you create a new story, there are these higher levels of your brain that are supervising the story for a while being like, well, let's make sure that that actually predicts what's happening. And then for about 5,000 data points in a row, that model exactly predicts how my mom is going to relate to me um, and how my teachers relate to me. And so what happens is there, there, um, it crosses a threshold of predictive power where enough times in a row that story has predicted how people will treat me. And then those higher order parts of your brain say, you know what? I don't need to waste my time making sure that you're true. You're true. I'm going to leave and let you alone and start like supervising some other stories. I'm gonna, we're going to save our processing power. And then what happens is now that story has a life of its own. It's unsupervised. What happens when the story becomes unsupervised is that um, it sleeps until there's a context that matches its pattern. So there's no real way in our lives. So that story, um, you, so I start to meet new people that really, that love me all the time. I uh, new people that are like really supportive, even when I'm struggling. And what happens is, although that feels nice, it does nothing to erode that deeper, older story that you only deserve love when you're exceptional. And the reason is, if you can imagine that story is like a little spider web of, neural, uh, of neurons in my brain, it sleeps until there's a pattern that matches it. And, and that just kind of, that's another way that your brain is just supposed to work. It, it's, it's like, if, it's, if, a, if a story feels like, oh, well, this isn't a relevant context, it doesn't need to wake up and like do anything. So only when then I meet somebody who actually does treat me that way. 
Then I meet a woman who's like really lavishes praise when I'm exceptional and ignores me all other times. Then that story wakes up and says, oh, perfect. That per- this is love. This is love. Oh, boy. And so then in, in that story, I talk about how, how we can practice with those deeper stories, how we can consciously and in sort of Yogacara Buddhism, we, there's, there's ways that we sort of talk about kind of scuba diving where we look at, uh, we'll talk about touching a seed in order to be able to embrace it with mindfulness and compassion and, and wisdom. And so we go and we actually turn that story on in our practice on purpose in order to be able to practice with it. We don't wait for other parts of our lives to refute it. We go down and we really touch it. We turn it on and then we work with it. And I sort of talk more about that, but that's, that's what I mean by when a, a story becomes unsupervised. Great. I love that, Tim. Uh, um, well, we're at the end of our, do you have, a, do you have your book? in front of you or near you i don't they haven't sent me a printed copy yet so you're oh. you're uh you got one up on me oh i see <laughs> all right well then i want to just there's the very end of the book is a prayer basically so yeah. i was going to say why don't you read it but you don't have it so i'm going to read it okay yeah yeah at this moment may we sit in the middle of the storm fully present may we bring our complete attention to the here and now, although it might be full of uncertainty and pain. May we allow the soft animal of the body to react however it will, not asking it to be anything different than it is. May we gaze at the body and the feelings with total love and acceptance, appreciating the beauty of life in all its forms. May we all be happy, May we all be healthy. May we all be safe. May we all be loved. You're really a bhakti guy, actually. All of this mindfulness stuff, that's a ruse, as far as I can yeah, see. It's true. <laughs> so yeah. Good. Oh, boy. So, Tim, uh, all of, uh, so everybody out there, Tim's books and links to them and whatever else we were talking of course, Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, everything else with it. it'll all be available in the show notes page on beherenownetwork.com slash mindrolling and uh, boy I'm happy to have met you I have to thank Melinda over at Harper for that and uh, let's do this again keep in yeah. touch a little bit Tim it's really yeah. fantastic uh, yeah. this is mindrolling we'll see you again next week